This episode is brought to you by the Hammerhead Cargo 2 Cycling Computer. Find out later on in the show how you can get up to $170 when you trade in your current cycling computer for a Caru 2. Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, a weekly podcast where a panel of scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting-edge coaches discuss discuss topics in training, performance, science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by Cyrus Monk, who is a pro cyclist and cycling coach, Damien Roos, who is a professional cycling coach and author of the Cycling Science Digest, and also me, Dr. Jason Boynton, sports scientist and cycling coach. But um, we have with us today a special guest on the panel, um, Mr. Harry Sweeney, professional cyclist here. So um, Cyrus will be leading the conversation with Harry today, but this won't be a standard interview. This is going to be kind of a, a back and forth. And so welcome to the panel, Harry. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for coming on, Harry. Uh, Harry Sweeney, for those who don't know him listening at home, which will be a, f- a fairly small number of people that don't know him now because he's had a pretty good year, rides for Lotto Sadal, and he has yeah jumped straight into the deep end in his first year as a neo pro racing the biggest stage race there is tour de france and probably the two biggest one day races in Paris bay and the world champs and yeah doing a pretty good job in these races and getting plenty of tv time so it's been a yeah big year for harry and we are gonna look today and ask some questions about how you got to this point, Harry, and what has been involved in getting there both from your end and from the the team, how they've they've helped you progress to that. But firstly, we'll go back to the beginning. How did you get into cycling in the first place? Uh, it wasn't actually until 2015 was my first year. I moved across from triathlon. Um, I had a few issues running. I got a stress fracture in my hip. So I spent a lot of time just on the bike doing reha- uh, rehab basically. And my first year on the bike, I went to world champs in Richmond for, I think it was the first year under 19. And then after that, it was pretty much just in over my head and was just seeing if I could make it. <laughs> yep. So the, what did I yeah, say when Jimmy was on be- <laughs> <laughs> about runners? All runners are cyclists. <laughs> They just need to get injured. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a pretty common one. The old running injury yeah. and it goes across to cycling. But uh, yeah, it's it's good that you moved out of the, the dark world of triathlon <laughs> and um, seems to be working out. Counting my lucky stars now. <laughs> yeah. Seems to be working out pretty well for you. You said you went to to Worlds in Richmond in your first year. How how did they scout you? So that's obviously through the the AIS basically has picked you up there and and worked out. Ah, oh, this kid's pretty good. How did how did they find you? Uh, essentially, I began. I was in the QAS Triathlon program, and that was sort of not really a program, but more just like a coaching group and. It wasn't really so much a pathway to the AIS and triathlon just because of the way that it works. They had a completely separate program from the AIS. Um, but you basically just had to make, meet these ridiculous benchmarks for to make the AIS program as a triathlete. Like when you're 15, you have to run a sub 15-minute 5K. And it was basically these really unachievable benchmarks that basically led to a lot of overtraining in these guys from the QAS program. Um especially at such a young age, is still at school. Um, so I basically did a direct transfer to the QAS cycling program because they'd seen some of my benchmark tests that I did, like the VO2 test as a like my first year cycling. So that was pretty much like a, a matter of my triathlon coach just got on the phone to the cycling coach and it was just done. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, it's lucky your triathlon coach did that. Yeah. <laughs> but... It's interesting hearing that. So they're pretty much just trying to make or break athletes. And that's like the the meat grinder approach yeah. that Jason's talked about before where you just, yeah, 
you just smash them and hope that they come out the other end better or they end up stopping. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, well, that's essentially what I've seen over the last few years because I'm still somewhat in the world of triathlon where I have friends that are still doing it and the cream of the crop that made it through the AIS program are going really well. Yeah. But then there's still guys that never made it into that program and have just grinded and grinded and still got to the same place. So. I think it's a much of a muchness, but in the end, uh, the benchmarks they're pushing for guys that age are near on impossible. Yeah, and I think it's something, yeah, we see a lot. Now, even in cycling, the benchmarks for younger ages and how young people are getting picked up is crazy. Like uh, here in Belgium, they're just scouting juniors, but like under 17s and putting them into programs and testing them and, and this kind of stuff already with with world tour teams. Like they'll go to an under seventeen race in Belgium and a world tour team will chuck someone yeah. straight like make them sign something so that they're already tied up with that team and then yeah. But and um, have them have them doing some pretty crazy stuff from such a young age. Ju- jumping ahead here a little bit, did you ever feel that same pressure in cycling? Yeah, definitely. When I was on Mitchelton, uh, after I left under 19s and went directly to under 23s, and I joined a program that was essentially had a history of producing some of the best climbing talents in the world. And that wasn't something that I necessarily developed into as I grew older and my physiology changed considerably from how I was as an under-19. Like each year, my first year at Worlds in 2015, I was 63 kilos. And then the following year, I was oh, 70 kilos. And then the year after that, mm. 75 kilos. So it wasn't something that I sort of maintained. And what I was as an under-19 definitely wasn't as an under-23 and I think I felt that pinched holding for sure because it was the only Australian program that you could go without sort of diverging down a different pathway. And it was like it was either you're a climber or you're not really going to go well there. Mm-hmm. Well, so um, actually, uh, um, I couldn't remember it when you were talking about those KPIs. Uh, there's a something called Goodhart's Law, and it's basically the, the idea that as soon as something a measure becomes um, target targeted, it no longer becomes a good measure. Yeah. So I, I understand that programs like what you were in probably have to have to have something to kind of shoot for, but it at the end of the day it gets a little bit myopic, right? There's always, you know, it gets back to that story that we were talking about with um, what's his name, Damien, help me out here, Mark Cavendish. Yeah. <laughs> In my brain it's not working today but anyways well, um, yeah, he didn't meet any of the yeah. targets but then they mm-hmm. you know someone spoke up and said he's but he's winning races no one else is winning races mm-hmm. so yeah, they put exactly. him in a program but anyway so yeah yeah and, and, but for and for juniors that's that's unfortunate that he had to go through that mate yeah so there's there's my little interruption my little piece there but yeah so when you're in the under 23 program harry and you I know you were over at the AIS base at that point, weren't you, yeah. in Italy? Yeah, in yeah. So, obviously, that was back in the glory days when Australia had an under-23 program. Yeah. And, unfortunately, that's no longer really a thing at all. But uh, in that period, were what was the sort of setup there like with the staff and what kind of help were you getting there? Because it seemed like a, a world-class setup from the outside. And, yeah, we that's sort of what a lot of uh, institutes now, national institutes aspire to be like that was because it produced so many good cyclists. Mm-hmm. So what, were, what was the setup like there? The setup there was really good, but a lot of the – when you say it produced a lot of good cyclists, you have to remember that these guys are already the the cream of the crop from Australia. So it's not like we're, they're taking guys off the street and then they're becoming who they are. Like these yeah. guys are already national champions, like criterium champion. They're like off the track. They might be world champions. So these guys come here. And I think a lot of why it was so successful was because of that, not necessarily because of what the program actually achieved. I think if you looked at some of the guys that were thrown to the wayside by the by the sort of burn-off approach that they had, I think there'd be a lot of great guys that 
missed out on an incredible career in the world tour because of the approach that they had. But I think from the setup point of view, it was impeccable. Like you couldn't get a better under 23 setup in terms of equipment, sports scientists, uh, nutrition to some degree, equipment. Like it was just everything was how you wanted it to be, including the program. Yeah, really good point there. And we've said it before about the best way to be a, a good coach is to just choose good athletes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then the best way to be a successful coach because, yeah, then most of your job's already done for you. Yeah. But so with the the sports science side of things there, like there's not many under 23 athletes get access to that side of things. So were they your coaches and like – were, were you working with a coach at that point that was a sports scientist or did you have your own coach away from that and you just consulted the sports scientists in that AIS program? Yeah, so we had Pelham and Asper who is pretty well-renowned in, in many countries, I would assume, um, but particularly Australia. Um, we worked with Caleb Bjorn a lot. So he was our main sports scientist and also somewhat of a referral coach that we could um, bounce ideas off but for the most part I still had my coach from the AIS that also from the QAS that I still worked with in Australia at the time and we would just consult with uh, with Paolo but um, you know even just to have someone like Paolo even if he's not having daily input into your training something that you can't really um, yeah you can't put a value on I don't think yeah um you probably don't know this, Harry, but uh, Paolo was my co-supervisor for my PhD. So oh, really? Yeah, every, yeah, yeah. So everything you say about him is correct. He's very knowledgeable. Yeah. He's a very good guy. It's because of him that I – he's one of the key components of why I'm in Australia. Cause, um, yeah. So I sent an email to my primary supervisor, and he missed it. And I managed to get a Facebook message to Paolo because I saw that he was on papers with Chris. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that's where my relationship with him started. And then he ended up being my co-supervisor. So yeah, he's actually been in this apartment here. <laughs> so uh, yeah, now he's at the AIS. Um, he's like director of science or something like that. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's, it's been really cool to see him, uh, his career develop over the years that I, I've, I've known him. So um, but yeah, uh, and then I, through him, I actually was able to get a little bit of uh, a taste of the U23 program back yeah. in 2016, uh, cause I was at one of your, uh, world tour academies and I came out and I spoke at that and I kind of talked about power and training with power. And then I also yeah. talked about, um, cold acclimation and how to dress through for the cold. Cause obviously you guys coming from Australia over to the, the early races was kind of, kind of cold. So yeah, yeah, there's that little bit of connection. So there's just talking about how, um, before you got on about how great the AIS is, but it, yeah, yeah, it does kind of sad me to hear that there's a little bit of meat grinding going on there. So yeah. But I, I'd have to say that I think Paolo is probably one of the main drivers of all of the success that that program had. Like he, the, the meat grinding definitely has nothing to do with Paolo because he has to foresee so much of the program. I think oh, I'm sure it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Every experience I had with him was absolutely positive and really reassuring. Mm -hmm. I think it was the other aspects of the program where some of the guys with non-performance backgrounds were putting benchmarks on riders is where there was issues, I would mm -hmm. have to say. Yeah, yeah. That's a good clarification because I wouldn't think for a second that he would have anything to do with that for sure. No. So it's really good that he said that. He's very empathetic and, and understanding as as a co-supervisor, my academic co-supervisor. So I could see how he'd be really great to work with. Um, yeah, absolutely. Being an athlete. So, uh, yeah, you obviously got the some of the best of the best in the under-23 world and then in the high performance side of things and then moved to a, a team with no performance division in Evo Pro. So what was the, the big change there once you had to self-manage? How was that going from having an environment where you do have these people overseeing your training and to bounce ideas off and coaches that you're working with to all of a sudden 
being completely independent. Like obviously there's the team structure there, but in terms of managing your own training and fitness, it's all on you. Yeah, well, as Jason said before, when a benchmark becomes something that you focus on, it's not really a good benchmark anymore. And I think that's the issue I had on Mitchelton is I wasn't in the headspace to be able to relate well with these benchmarks. I was in a position where the benchmarks were everything and performance was something that sort of came secondary. So I think taking a step back to Evo Pro and mentally just in my mind was either I make it or I don't. And in a way it was sort of pressure off. So performance became the benchmark that I wanted and not, for example, power or weight or diet or physique. And I think that's sort of what gave me the joy back in it was not having any outside pressure and to focus on what I really wanted. And I think going through that program, I was quite good at um, monitoring myself essentially and making sure I was in the right place to perform well instead of forcing myself to be where I needed per se to perform well. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's a a good point is being able to focus on results is important, like focus on being good in bike races because that's all that matters in terms of moving up. Like we, we did a podcast on moving from amateur to professional and the key at every step is to win races. So yeah, obviously a big part of, of moving up is winning races and you're able to, to win a race with Evo Pro and then win a few big ones with the Lotto amateur team to move up. So obviously there's plenty of riders out there that are hitting all the good numbers and, and testing amazing. But if you don't win races, it, it means absolutely nothing for moving up as you go through. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of the the Australian program is entirely focused around uh, making the transition to life in Europe and giving you all the tools that you need to perform well. But the, th- the problem I had is I was so neurotic and like so caught up in my own head and like really liked the performance parameters and was obsessed basically with how to get better, like from a scientific point of view that it became everything that I thought about instead of everything that you can use potentially to get better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it's important to, like you, as I've just said, you can smash all the numbers, but you've got to actually win races. And yeah, I guess at, at Evo Pro, the, the focus on this team still is just is winning races. There's no performance division. There's no staff. Uh, checking the scales or the power numbers. It's all, yeah. all they care about there is races. I don't think that's the, the answer to high performance whatsoever, but I think probably in your development, I'd say it was a good, a good contrast from the AIS scenario where it was so numbers based to have that mix. And I'd say, yeah, do you think that's helped you going into Lotto Sedal to have a bit of both there? Absolutely. I think it helped me. Uh, make the transition to like trusting myself and not if I like just basically listening to my own body. And then I think the transition then again back to a performance based program with a very um, analytic based approach to your performance as well. I think I've found a really good middle ground between uh, using what I have in terms of data and coaches and uh, scientists at Lotto. And yeah, just striking the middle ground between how I feel as well, because you can say all you want that you need to do this, this and this, but if it's not working, then it's not working. So it really has helped me. But at the same time, I had to be in the right headspace to consult the like with the right uh, people and also just take in with a grain of salt what you need to know. Yeah. And what what's it look like now at Lotto? So uh, yeah, you've obviously moved straight into some of the big races. So I'd say you're getting access to every the the same things as the top riders there now. Um, but what is the setup like there with staff? Do you have your own individual coach or is there a number of coaches that you're working with? Yeah, so we have. I've been working with a coach since I initially joined Lotto at the start of last year on the development team. And he works, we have a, a company called Energy Lab that we outsource all of our performance uh, metrics to basically. So you can go there and you get like a DEXA, your bike fit, nutritionists are there, 
We have coaches that are there. Um, and that's in Belgium? Yeah, that's in Belgium. And it's a, it's not just an exclusively cycling-based uh, company. I think they uh, work with some of the football teams in Belgium as well. But um, my coach uh, liaises basically with the head coach of Lotto, who also works at Energy Lab. But it's more so that I, it feels a lot more personalized having someone that's like really focused on you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the when when you're getting stuff outside of the coaching, are you always doing that through Energy Lab then? Or is there the, the specific team stuff for it? Uh, a little bit of both. We have... For example, um, at our team days just recently, we there's a wind tunnel in the Ridley factory that we all went to. Um, and then it really depends how specialized the, um, the consulting is that you need. You know, like we're, we outsource people obviously to do like heart tests and ultrasounds and that. But I think the energy lab is more um, bigger picture, like making sure that the, the right building blocks are there. And then when we need really specialized advice, it's outsourced to people that are really in the know. Yeah. So, yeah. And the, this has obviously helped because you've been showing me some pretty saucy power numbers in the Snapchats this year when you've been <laughs> doing some PVs. So what do you, like, do you think this has led to that improvement in the numbers? Cause uh, yeah, from from the outside, it, it definitely looks like the your numbers have improved because you're at the top of these big races. Or has it purely just been the fact that you're getting the opportunity and the actual level is not too much different? You're just finding yourself at the front of these races now. Uh, I think nearly exclusively, my data hasn't changed very dramatically from last year. I think what's changed is. Uh, having confidence with the direction that I'm going as a rider and having the confidence from the team. Not so much um, the opportunity because, like, I've always had opportunity. Like in Evo, everyone gets opportunity. Uh, I think it's more that I actually know that I can do something with the opportunity now and I have the whole team that's backing me up saying that I can as well. Um, but if I look back at my power numbers, like, obviously there's uh, change and I think the biggest change would be entirely in fatigue resistance as opposed to absolute power output. Um, and I think that just is uh, basically like a something that comes on the side when you're performing in these races. Like you get to the finish of one race and then the next race you get to the finish and do a little bit more and just stepping stones like that as opposed to just like really getting a higher power output. I think most of the pros that you can see just have these incredible fatigue resistance, but their absolute output's not going to be dramatically different. Yeah, it's something we talked about. Like you see the, everyone sees the Velon numbers that they post after someone's stage wing attack and then all the young kids at home say, oh, I can do those numbers. It's not even that good. And yeah, it's all, can you do those numbers on stage 11 of a tour after 150K in that stage or after 4,000 KJs already? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Damien here. I'm taking a quick moment to talk about Hammerhead's great trading deal. But first, let me tell you what I love most about the Kagu 2. It just looks sharp. As in, it's a beautifully designed piece of tech. And this goes for the whole process. The sign-up process, turning it on, navigating the features. It's cool and sexy. And I know that this isn't a list of features or something that will make you go faster. But if style and design count for anything in some wonky way, then the Hammerhead Karu 2 is a hands-down winner across any cycling computer that I have ever owned. Now, if you are convinced enough that this adds value to your experience and makes your bike look good super good, super nice, then Hammerhead also are making the choice easier because for a limited time, Hammerhead has an incredible deal. Buy a Karu 2 at hammerhead.io forward slash trade and get up to $170 when you trade in your current cycling computer. This rebate of $170 when you trade up to a Karu 2 from Hammerhead and trade in your current cycling computer 
is only for a limited time. This offer won't last long and it's available at hammerhead.io forward slash trade. So don't wait to trade in and trade up to a Karu 2 today and get up to 170 off your purchase. That's hammerhead.io forward slash trade to get your trade started today. Actually, got a question for you here, Harry. Yeah. Um, so the amateur versus the the pro. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so with the amateur athlete that would have the day job, you might be able to get. You're going to get them to be able to put heart rate data and upload their GPS, so they're going to get power data and and that yeah. type of thing. And I would imagine, obviously, the pros are going to do that as well, right? Um, so, but as a professional cyclist, it becomes your job. And so you would assume that the coach and the performance people are probably going to expect more metrics from you in terms of, I mean, you could get, get, get really crazy. I mean, um, some of the research I was doing, I was preparing questionnaires for the athletes to, yeah. to, to do every day um, to kind of assess their, um, their recoveries and their sleep and their and mood and that type of thing. And so it was around um, travel and jet lag and that type of stuff. So, but so one side it's your, it's your job, but at the other side, you're still human, right? And this is probably going to be individual dependent, but have you ever had the thought, I know being someone that's obviously that appreciates the numbers, have you ever had the thought of like, what is too much for metrics and, can you kind of explain to us like what metrics you would normally um, upload or record or report or uh, maybe testing that is done that maybe an amateur wouldn't see, but you would see pretty regularly? It's kind of a, a broad question, but um, hopefully you can kind of understand what I'm kind of going for there. Yeah. Um Personally, I, I do use a lot of metrics, probably similar to what a lot of other guys do in that I have like sleep tracking, heart rate variability in aura ring, um, like just basic things like step count as well. Um, and obviously, like you can see that trending over time as well. And then I use heart rate every day when I train, power, cadence. Um, but it's more that... I don't think personally there's too much data for me because I like it, but it's more about how much I expose myself to because my aura ring will upload to my training peaks and my coach will have a look at it, but I don't necessarily have a look at it. And it's one of those things where I'm super interested in it, but the more I look at it, the more of a wormhole I go down. And it's, yeah, it's, it's something that I think you have to feel out for yourself because I know guys that will go out and they won't have heart rate, they won't track their sleep and it's not necessarily bad for their performance but like it, I think it's something that your coach might want to know because if you've had really poor sleep for an entire week, my coach is going to see that and change my program. Maybe if it's a little bit less and I'm not feeling as well and he can see that from the data that my ring puts onto my training peaks then he might change it, but not necessarily tell me so that like I'm still just training in my head as normal. And I think it's more about your coach and his relationship with your data more so than yours. Mm-hmm. If that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, Jason, you've talked about this in terms of how much does the athlete need to know if things are bad, like in the testing, especially like, yeah, the, if you yeah. can take that stress off the athlete, it, it saves them. That's a that's a question I have. When you're at the at the tour, were you checking HRV and heart rate, sleep? No. Were you looking at it? I had I brought my aura ring and I would upload it maybe on the rest day, and then that was it. It wasn't something that I looked at, and I knew that when I looked at it, I wouldn't be any like helpful yeah, yeah. at all. But I didn't really care to be honest with you. I I felt great the entire tour, and it was. Su- this is something that I think metrics is great in measuring is when you're not going well. When you're going well and you know you're going well, your confidence is high. There's nothing that's going to tell you what you can do to, to be better, really. Like, I think the best performance metric is if you're happy and you feel good and you're going well. I think it's 
that's so crucial. And like at that point in the tour when I'm going well and I'm feeling good, I'm like, it doesn't matter what my HRV is or not yep. because it's not going to change anything. Yep. Like what am I to do? Yep. I think that-, that that's exactly what I was thinking. I, um, I coached my first rider into a grand tour this year and we do HRV and it's a double-edged sword. If he was checking it every day, then one day saw a really bad number. I didn't yeah. want it to get in his head. So that's why I was asking whether you that that's something that you're aware of. If you see a bad number, does it fuck with you? But obviously it doesn't. Definitely not. Going because off how you feel. Yeah, I think or well, not even off how I feel anymore. Because when when I won um, a stage of Rhone Alps as air when I was with Evo Pro, I remember like vividly sending a message to the team manager that day saying, like, mate, I'm like absolutely cactus i need a break like let me go home and then i won the stage that had some of the best legs i've had all year and i think that's something that i've sort of taken in my stride now no matter where i go is it doesn't really matter how you feel because either everyone feels the same Mm -hmm. or you're just so in your head about things and how your body feels is not necessarily how you're going to feel in a few hours when you're like in the race so i don't think it's something that really affects me anymore but I don't use that data really, if it makes sense. Like I love knowing about what the data does and how you can improve these things, but I'm not actively watching it. You know, like when you get obsessed about the final destination, you sort of miss out on how to do all these steps. So like, instead of me being like, I'm going to check my HRV every day, I might be like me to use my phone less before bed, have a cold shower or something, make sure my room's cold when I sleep. And do that every day. And then over time, when you do check it eventually, you're going to see an uptrend in your performance. Yeah. I think when you get so obsessed with the end goal, then it's not a good thing. Yeah, there's a, there's a few things that it kind of point out. So how about during, uh, oh, no, sorry, no. Jason, oh, I was just say, how about during the stages then? How do, you, how do you know if you're on a good day? Pretty much entirely by feel, but even then, yeah, the feeling can be deceiving. Like when you are halfway deep into a tour, the way that you feel in the first two hours is completely different from how you feel in the in the last two hours or even the last hour or 30 minutes of the race. So um, personally, I I don't think it it's a matter whether you're on a good or a bad day because at the end of the day, you have to complete the stage. And it's the only time it might make a difference is when you have teammates relying on you and then you really have to be in tune with it. But if you're getting through the day or say trying to get into the breakaway, if you're feeling bad, you're still probably going to have to do it anyway. So it's more just about being able, I, th- I guess it comes down to self-talk. Like if you're feeling bad, it's, it's not going to be forever. Maybe I'm going to feel better later on in the stage, which is usually the case. Um, so I think it just becomes more of a thing of getting to know yourself rather than obsessing over how you feel in that moment. Yeah, it's the classic one when you you go back the bottles and the DS says how are you feeling and you say rubbish and they say oh don't worry you'll ride into it every time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> every time you go back it's how oh, you'll ride into it and yeah. Often, yeah. often you don't you still rubbish the whole day but you have to think <laughs> you have to think in your head that you're going to ride into it or you already ride off your own chances for the rest of the day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, I, I kind of wonder when you talk about the other riders versus yourself, how much of that kind of habit and appreciation for at least collecting the data is has been instilled with you from the AIS and just having that kind of with you because you know the AIS is going to be very science based. Um, and I don't know if you guys can kind of think- have some anecdotes to compare yourself to other riders that went through that program and then kind of compare them with maybe riders that in Europe that maybe didn't go through something like that. Um, but I guess, I guess one of the things to point out with is, um, one of the handy things for data is having it, even if you don't use it right away, it's really nice to have when things aren't going right to go back to when things were going well and having all of that data to tell the story of what was going on then versus what is going on now. And I think as it, I've talked about this before in the show about how there's a cost. Every time you're going to take a metric from an athlete, there's a cost. And I think what the, as the technology gets better, the, the cost to the athlete is going to be much less as you've kind of touched on here with how easy it is. Some of these things, something as easy as um, wearing a ring, right? 
um, yeah. as opposed to like how hard that would be to get those types of metrics. Um, and it's just, a, just a decade ago or five years ago. So, but yeah, the other thing is just that healthy, that healthy kind of relationship with numbers. And this is something I've come across with my athletes. I don't know if you guys have, uh, my colleagues here have had, ever had this, but yeah, whenever you get that athlete that does look at the numbers too much and does kind of freak out about it, you just have to have that, I don't want to come to Jesus moment with them and just say like, look, these numbers are here to only help you. And if they are not helping you, if they, if you, if it is messing with your head, then there's, we have to do something about that. Even if it comes down to just putting a piece of tape over the garment head unit or something like that, you know? Yeah. Was there a point there, Harry, where you thought you were too focused on the numbers? Like you sort of touched on it there before, but did you have sort of a, uh, okay, like a moment where it was, I need to stop looking at data so much? Not really. It Definitely in Mitchelton, but my obsession with all the performance parameters was definitely something that I had well before I joined the AIS. And it was the basically the culmination when I joined Mitchelton and they liked the performance data as well when it sort of really came together. Because when you're an under 15 or under 19, for example, you're probably in cycling at least when I was coming through, I don't think you had as much of it jammed down your throat. So it was sort of a good balance that I was super interested in it and I never really trained with power as an under 19. So I was more like uh, doing it myself and my coach would give me my training and I could investigate the rest by myself. But when I joined Mitchelton, they were just as interested in it as me. So it would just sort of lead to this relationship where I just absolutely obsessed with it. And I never thought that it was too much, but when I joined Evo Pro, I realized that it was enough when only one person is doing that for you as opposed to having yourself and another coach doing it for you. So I think on on Evo Pro, it was a perfect amount. I was doing it myself, but like obviously you can't trust yourself when you've got like other scientists that can do it for you. So then when I moved to Lotto, I probably stopped obsessing about it myself and gave that job to the coaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, and I guess that's just one less thing you have to worry about. Yeah. And that, yeah. that lets you focus on getting results. Yeah. There's that trade off between um, where you want the, you want the athlete to be engaged with their numbers and have an understanding of what's going on, but obviously you don't want it to be a negative experience for them because you don't want, from my philosophy in coaching is that I'm not here to be a data dump either. Right. Like the, yeah. the, the, my athletes should have an understanding of like what their numbers look and add, be adding context to what is going on in their logs and that type of thing. But you bring up an, this conversation brings up an interesting point in terms of like, as a professional athlete that has is so focused on you yourself and, and performing really highly, um, yeah, then you hire a professional coach. That's their job to look at those numbers. So I don't know how. What do you think that trade off is in terms of you know? Do you feel okay just saying like, look, I'm going to perform better if I don't look at these numbers here, coach? Just I'm going to dump this data on you. Is that okay? Um, versus you know sitting down and looking at your power piles after your rides and things like that. What, what do you think would be your preference uh, for the long term? do you think out of those i would say definitely to outsource that to my coach i think i have so much interest in it that it's something that i can have just little bits and pieces of and maybe even something that i subconsciously might integrate into my training like if i'm reading about physiology and for instance at the start of the year i was reading about uh that how your body sometimes can um cease to adapt to training load when your physical stress, like when your um, life stresses are too great. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that I've sort of taken into my life this year is that I've tried to reduce the life stresses and sort of build a life for myself mm-hmm. that is uh, surrounding enjoying myself and having a happy life out like completely regardless of cycling. So yep. I think that's something that you can take into account without obsessing mm-hmm. over and I think it goes for everything else. Like you can change your nutrition without obsessing over it and consult other people about that. So I definitely I'd prefer to outsource mm-hmm. it. Yeah, that's a good point. So obviously those things 
uh, you're working with those people to improve and that's, yeah, helping your numbers and get making you a better rider. The question that I've got down here, which obviously you've joined the team as a domestic, as a domestic, as a lead out man, the Caleb is your, your main role, would you say? Yeah. And you, yeah, you followed him to some of the biggest races. So the question I've got here is, is at what point are you, do you get the chance to go, okay, I'm going to get results for myself here. And how does that discussion go with the team to allow you to still keep getting results yourself? Because obviously, yeah, you can be a really good domestic in a team, but there's hundreds and hundreds of good domestics and you, you still obviously want to be able to pursue your own goals as well. I didn't actually have to ask to be honest. They came to me and said at the end of last year or at the end of this year, basically we had to sit down and discuss my program and it basically will just be 50-50. So they sort of can see that I have potential just outside of doing domestic duty. So now my program will consist of half classics, half what Kayla's program uh, surrounds, but I think it's, um, I think it goes hand in hand. To be honest, uh, doing lead out style riding and doing the classics is the, I think the physiology is quite similar, um, and it's not really something that I had to ask for. I think it's just been a natural progression that after my performance this year that they've said like we can give you more opportunities instead of the opportunities maybe sometimes popping up, it'll be like we're going to go here with the objective of doing this and then you're going to go here with the objective of leading out Caleb. So it's going to be a very well-rounded program, I think, and something that is going to be quite rewarding as opposed to having only one facet of performance. So if I'm going poorly in the classics, you might be still playing a very vital role in the lead out and vice versa. Yeah. So with Roubaix, for example, this year, he obviously had a super good ride there and was riding the, the front for almost the whole race. Was that one before that they said, right, you, this is something that you can prepare for and try to do your own result in? Or was it something that you were preparing for thinking you were going to be more doing duties for Bill Jill or something like that? Uh, basic. Well, before that, I broke my collarbone in was it August? Maybe no, a bit later. I think I yeah, I broke my collarbone about August. So I had five weeks basically until Roubaix, and I just basically came together with the coaches and said, "Look, it's going to be my goal to come back, finish this strong." And that's about all there was from that point. Like they, the team knew that Roubaix would be a race that would suit me, and it suited so many people on the team. Um. So it was more focused around trying to just come back and be good in Roubaix as opposed to like, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that in Roubaix. So it was more, yeah, just about bigger picture of actually getting there and be going well. And then during the race, it sort of just unfolded that way that I was in the breakaway. Like it was my job to be there early on and yeah, it just played into my favor. Yeah. And so with that five weeks, good insight into like just a, a race prep for a one-day race so what kind of thing were you doing to prepare during that five weeks like did you do a two or three week smash yourself phase to come back like and dig a big hole there and try and come out of it before worlds which was obviously a week before or was it you relying more on the work you'd done earlier in the season and just doing some tune-up stuff no i i basically rebuild again so i did I would say two and a half weeks where I just did base again. So I was doing 25 to 30 hours for those two and a half weeks. And then intervals in that or just mostly? No, just just pretty much exclusively endurance because I couldn't sprint or anything. Like I couldn't get out of the saddle for at least two weeks really. Like my collarbone was really quite bad Um, because all the ligaments were ripped off the bone. So I had a shoulder reconstruction as well as getting the plate put on. Um, but I was back on the bike, I think eight days after the operation. Uh, so I was really like just doing K's and nothing else. And then I started building up again, doing some, the main session I was doing were, was, I think it was 20, 10, 20 second sprints. And then that was in the initial part. And then in the later part of the ride, so over three hours was like seven by one minute as max, just all you could put in. Yeah. 
and it was really exclusively based around the efforts that I'd be doing in Worlds and Roubaix. But the to get ready for Roubaix, it was going to be hard to have a taper for Worlds as well. Yeah. And looking back, I can see that how I was quite poor in Worlds and then I had three days off immediately after Worlds and then I was great in Roubaix. So I think the it was either a trade-off. I was going to be underdone yeah. at Worlds and underdone at Roubaix or a little bit overdone at Worlds and potentially yeah, right. good in Roubaix. Yeah. So I, I think it was really hard to play, really, really difficult. Yeah, but it's a it's a funny one when you have to sacrifice your performance at World Champs to be good for a race, like when World Champs is the B race and you have to <laughs> say, oh, I won't quite well, be that good at this one. It wasn't actually that, that way. I think we came into it and based on how I'd done earlier in the year, like in the tour, I go really well when I'm fatigued and – uh, like just really aerobically strong. And I think part of that, I wasn't going into world thinking I would not have good legs. Yeah. I, I sort of went in there knowing I'd done a lot of work, but still capable of doing what I needed to do. Um, but yeah, I, I think it was just one of those things where maybe I did a little bit too much and tried to bite off a bit more than I could chew to do both. But yeah, it, it definitely wasn't the intention to go into it. It was sort of more like I'm going to try and get to where I need to be in between Worlds and Roubaix somewhere yeah. and hope that it's in time for Worlds. Yeah. And is the – so when your coach is setting that out, is is he talking with you about how you're going to be freshening up in that period of time or does he just tell you that's how it's going to be done? Like is that a discussion you have or does he make the call on it? Uh, definitely we make a, a grand plan beforehand of how the next four weeks are going to go. And it's so crucial when you do only have four weeks to Worlds to actually get what you need done. But then I think there's still a lot to be said about having uh, flexibility in your training. So when I got up to Worlds and I was like, oh, I'm feeling good and I raced and I was really not good, we sat down again and we are like, we need to just – either just have three days off, freshen up completely, and you're going to go well at Roubaix or you have three days off and you might get worse and go bad at Roubaix. But essentially I had nothing to lose. So we had a real honest discussion about it. And, like, you can have all the plans you want, but it's never really going to come how you want it. Like, if all was as we planned, I would have been great at Worlds and even better at Roubaix. But that wasn't how it happened. And I think the... The best part about having a coach is someone that you can adapt your plans to and actually have faith in that plan as opposed to him saying like, oh, I have three days off and then we'll see what we what we do from there. It's like have three days off and then we're going to go for Roubaix. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a good point. Quick question. Yeah. Um, what are your biggest lessons from this year from stepping up World Tour regarding racing and training like and being prepared for races? Uh, not so much the preparation, but the, the training is, I can take a lot more volume than I think as long as it's very controlled. I think I have enough of a aerobic engine that I can take a lot in a lot of Ks and it doesn't take me much at all to add the intensity on top to be at my best. So I think that it doesn't, it really doesn't take much out of me to do four hours, three hours each day, as long as it's quite controlled. And then I can really top it up in two weeks even. Mm -hmm. So I think my biggest lesson is that I can tolerate a lot. Um, Basically from the tour, I could see how much I could tolerate, but I have to be very careful with the intensity. Yeah. Good point there. Uh, And the last one I had is what were the biggest what were the unexpected challenges this year? So what were things that you didn't see coming about stepping up to the world tour that are actually a lot harder than you would have thought? Nothing inherently that I thought was difficult, um, but I think that's a lot down to um, a lot down to just being comfortable with where I was in the team and in the world tour as well. I, I didn't really feel like there was a huge step up at all from where I was last year to where I am this year. And I think that really played into my favour, but... For sure, an unexpected challenge was COVID earlier on in the year yeah. and how we managed my comeback from that. And that was quite uh, a challenging period 
to really know because there's not really much data that the scientists can go off on whether you can push it through all this period because Damien you probably experience and you too science with your writers that sometimes you're just on a plateau that you have to push through and sometimes you're not but when you're with COVID you don't know whether your plateau is because you've got heart inflammation or (laughs) a million other problems so that was really difficult. Like I had two weeks where I thought that I had heart inflammation and then one day I woke up and I was just normal again. And yeah, that, it, that was a really strange period. But I think that's where the other thing aspects of your life come in hand, where if you're obsessing over every performance parameter, if you're going poorly, then it becomes your whole life. Whereas if you have a life outside where you can decompress, then you can come back with fresh eyes, so to speak, on yeah. what you're facing. Just quickly, what did you actually do after COVID? Like what did your rest and your training look like? Because I had this question, just someone got in touch the other day and said, hey, I, I got COVID. Just wondering if you know what's going on, what what I can do coming back from it or if you've heard anyone. I'm sure we'll have some listeners that have either had it before or will, will get it, but there is no research out there. Well, there isn't much research out there on how high-level endurance athletes get affected and how they come back from it. So if you could actually say what you did after you had it and how long it took. Yeah, well, initially I had uh, 16 days immediately off. Like I tested positive the morning of uh, Dupana and stopped straight away and went into isolation for 10 days and did nothing. And then I was out for another five days. And then I slowly started training. I think the first week I did 10 hours, second week 20 hours, and then so that's effectively like did, an off season. Like some people have their off yeah, season for sixteen days. Yeah, but I felt even worse because I was getting to the point where, at like four pm during these first two weeks, I would just be crashed on the couch, just feeling like an absolute like sack of shit for like a better <laughs> term. And then just one day, I woke up and was like, I felt a lot better really, and I was able to do the training. And then, so I did ten hours, twenty hours. 20 hours again and then a few efforts but a shorter week maybe 15 hours and then I went to Dauphiné and then that so that was 11 days and then I had one day off and then five days or four days tour of Belgium 10 days off and then the tour started yeah so that that was the other thing I was gonna bring up earlier on when we we're talking about the tour but that kind of prep was that from did your coach say this is risky because you obviously did that's what yeah basically half a grand tour there in races with the grand yeah with a with a travel day in between so there's two scenarios there you come out fine or you come out going absolutely rubbish it wasn't really down to my coach to be honest we had i was still the plan was to ride the giro and then i got covid so I came back for that and I said, after the four weeks when the Giro started, I was going really quite well. And I said, look, if you want to take me, I'm ready, but I'm not really too sure. So then I sat down with Caleb again and we were like, oh, well, maybe we should try and go for the tour. But the team was really quite against the idea at the start because they've never sent a Neo to the tour. Obviously, it's such a big demand. Like you can't just drop out of the tour if you're going poorly. So we we came up with this initial plan of like, if we can do the first week of the Dauphiné and then I go home, have five days and then do well in the lead-outs at uh, Belois Tour, then we can take, We know that you're good enough for the tour. And I got, I think it was eight days or nine days into Dauphiné or whatever it is, and I felt really good. So I was like, oh, we'll keep going. So I basically finished it. I think I pulled out on like the last hilltop of the final day on Dauphiné and I was like pretty tapped out by that point and then the first stage of Dauph- uh, of Belgium tour I was real tapped out again and then I was good for the rest of that and that was it basically they were like going to be good enough to go to the tour yeah and was there a worry that it was going to cook you at any point like that it, you're going to be overdone from either you or from the team staff or if they're worried about that stuff do they even tell you Oh, absolutely. I was talking with the performance uh, directors and the directors every single day. I said, like, I know that this is going to take me to the edge in Dauphiné and then we're going to keep going in Belgium. And if it cooks me, I'm not going to the tour. And if it doesn't, then I'm recovering and going to the tour, basically. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it was a really open dialogue. It wasn't like they're sitting in the back room, like, oh, we're going to try and cook him up and see if he holds strong. It was like, I know this is going to cook me, but I'm not going to have the confidence to go to the tour unless I know I can do this many race days. Yeah, yeah. And I guess especially coming back from COVID and not being able to ride for 16 days, having that confidence going into the tour is huge because yeah. you can be hitting good numbers in training, but if you, you don't have the confidence from performing on race day, then it doesn't mean much going into the the Grand Boucle. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jason, do you want to fire over with your quick fire ones? Yeah. I guess I'm uh, pre-canned questions for you here, Harry. Um, so what's your favorite interval session my favorite interval session is a it's a bit of a like a pre-race day hit out it's not something you do often but more so like a a benchmark for to know where you're at is it's you do three by eight minutes tempo or threshold just below with i think it's eight minutes recovery on it and then you go into some 2040s i think uh, uh, five 2040s twice and then an hour recovery so then that's in the first hour of your ride and then you do another two hours riding and then in the last hour it's doing 10 second max sprints and then some two minute vo2 efforts in a partridge and a pear tree that's so <laughs> quite that's quite everything <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah so it it's really one of those sessions where you go into it mentally prepared like you would for a race day mm-hmm. and you see where where you're at and you you can see where your weaknesses are based yeah. on how you're doing in these individual efforts like if my two minutes are really poor uh, it, it might mean for example that i've not got enough aerobic base or enough of a anaerobic base from doing threshold work. So it really shows me where I need to work mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, based off of that, I know your memory works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, and uh, least favorite intervals. I don't have any. I, I like doing a lot of different ones. I try and keep it consistent in a way that I might do a lot of one set of intervals for a month and then change for another month. But for the most part, I don't really have any. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, what's the what's the worst mentoring or coaching you've ever experienced? Like the worst thing that someone's ever said to you or something, something that really messed with your head that came from a mentor or a coach? Um, well, that's a hard one. Um, I don't really have one that really sticks out. Um, probably the main theme that I'd say that's really poor is that comes from a triathlon background where training is that pretty much one of the only things that is a predictor of your performance is that you just have to push through everything. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a very poor way to look at performance in a holistic way and, over the years, I've seen it that it's not been good for the athletes in the long term. I think I think that gets into when I when I did bring up the discussion of the meat grinder coaches. I think it's probably a little bit more pre- prevalent in um, in triathlon. I think part of triathlon, no huh? days off. What's that? No days yeah, off yeah. in triathlon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so I think I think part of the issue with triathlon might be is that you with, with, with running or or cycling or when you're running when you're doing one of these endurance sports at, at one time you, it's easier to manage it i think in a scientific sense, sense because it's just one sport and you can put it into use a training load model or you know before there was even training load models it's probably easier to model it somewhat accurately in your head yeah um but i think when we start getting into putting three sports together it's probably relying a lot more on lore um because even with the training load models i don't know how much they can tell you and i don't know how many people would rely on it and it's probably still going to take lore coaching lore um and a little bit of dogma so i think once a coach has figured out a, a way to put things together, they're probably less likely to 
to, to be um, as soon as they get someone through the program and they become successful they're probably going to be less um, either able to or willing to change what they're doing so I, th- I think I think that might be part of it that's just what, I, what I'm guessing alrighty that was a good day um, thanks for coming on the show here Harry and um, just want to say thanks to my colleagues Damian and Cyrus here and uh you can find out when we release episodes if you follow our, our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram accounts. On Twitter, we are Cycling Club Pod. And on Instagram, we are Cycling Performance Club. Um, and hopefully soon, we'll be having people participate in the conversation here on the Riverside app. But until then, thanks for listening and see you guys next week. Cool. Thanks for that, guys. Pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers for coming on.